This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun. And that is worth celebrating. So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. This on? Hello? Hello? We're all science people. Science! Exactly. Evolution does some pretty funky things. We can teach kids and they get it. There's chemistry in here. There's biology in here. It's in whiskey. It's in ice cream. It's in who you fall in love with. That's the recipe for success. We can make the world better for everybody. Starting now. Greetings, greetings, greetings. Welcome to Science Rules. I'm your host, Bill Nye. This is the show where science rules. It's a call-in show. If you want to be on the show, and I hope you do, please leave a voicemail at 201-472-0785 or go to askbillnye.com. It's your homepage, I'm sure, askbillnye.com. You can also check me out uh, on all the socials, as the kids call them, on the electric internet. And uh, you can find out about our upcoming guests and prepare your questions for them. Now, I am joined once again by science writer, editor, and my dear friend, Corey S. Powell. Greetings, Corey. Oh, Bill. Greetings to you. Uh, And greetings to a wonderful show. One of the things I love about this show is that we can talk about pretty much anything that has anything to do with science. And we have a guest who seems to have worked on pretty much everything in science. So what could be better? Nothing. Uh, Because our guest today is Nathan Mirvold. Yes, my friends, Nathan Mirvold. And he has been many things. So settle in. Co-founder of the invention and patent company Intellectual Ventures, founder of Microsoft Research, a noted paleontologist, and co-author of the James Beard award-winning cookbook, Modernist Cuisine. Uh, Nathan Mirvold, welcome to Science Rules. May I call you Nathan? Absolutely. What have you been doing? We are in a pandemic. We are locked <laughs> down. What have you got going? Well, at uh, at work, we've had a lot of uh, focus on the uh, pandemic. I a part of our my company is called the uh, Institute for Disease Modeling, uh, and so we have one of the best groups in the world at modeling the spread of infectious disease. Mostly that had been about uh, diseases that affect uh, the developing world. Uh, And we work very closely with my uh, old friend and colleague, Bill Gates, on that. Uh, But of course, as soon as we all were in the middle of a pandemic ourselves, we we turned a lot of effort towards uh, COVID. So that's that's one thing I do. But um, I also work on asteroid modeling and on paleontology and on new kinds of computational photography and lots of stuff. So are you excited about Asteroid Day? (laughs) I'm always excited about Asteroid Day. Are you Um, saying every day is Asteroid Day in your world? (laughs) 
<laughs> Pretty much. Um, well, every day Earth does uh, collide with asteroids. They're just mostly grain of sand sized things. Um, someday we're going to uh, collide with a big one. And uh, it would be really nice if we understood them better so we understood what our options were should that day come. Okay, so what are you doing to help out? Uh, so I've been engaged in uh, doing uh, asteroid thermal modeling, which is using infrared uh, um, observations of asteroids to try to better gauge their size. As the saying goes, asteroids are like a piece of charcoal in the dark. Uh, they are all very dark colored, and it's really black out there in space. And as a result, they're very hard to spot. Um, the, the other thing about asteroids is that uh, they've been around for a long time. In some sense, they're the construction debris that's left over from building the solar system. And for the last you know, four and a half billion years, they've been colliding with each other and getting into weird resonances with planets. So there's asteroids in all kinds of parts of space with all kinds of weird um, trajectories. And we honestly don't know how many of them are going to hit us in the next year or whether any of them will be significant. Yeah, so when I was a kid, uh, there was not any real good theory as to what happened to the ancient dinosaurs. But now, uh, yep. with the study of asteroids, we were pretty confident that it was a big asteroid that finished them off. Correct. It was... Um, a father and son team, actually. Um, Louis Alvarez, who was one of the uh, Nobel Prize winning scientists, one of the great uh, nuclear physicists, uh, and in fact uh, was part of the Manhattan Project and actually rode in one of the planes that delivered one of the bombs. They wanted to have a science guy <laughs> along to, uh, uh, to see it. And then his son, Walter, was a, a geologist. And the son, Walter, got the dad, Louie, interested in how could you date this age of when the dinosaurs died more precisely. And uh, Louie had this idea, and he said, oh, every year there's a little bit of asteroids come. The asteroids have some rare ma uh, materials in them, like iridium, which aren't really found very much on Earth. So, Because the, during the primordial Earth, it is generally accepted, the iridium, atomic number 77, uh, sank to the middle, probably. Yep. That's so right. There's very little on the, or not much on the Earth's surface. A lot of the really heavy things, particularly really heavy things that, that don't like to form chemical bonds, so that's gold, platinum, iridium, and there's a, a bunch of elements like that, they're all down in the core of the Earth. So they were thinking, oh, I'm going to have a way of dating rocks by looking at slight changes in the amounts of iridium over periods of time. Well, what they found was this layer that killed the dinosaurs had this ginormous amount more than any other rocks. Yeah, there you go. And so you got interested in paleontology through what? And then, and then you also, if I understand this, dinosaur biomechanics, is that right? Yeah. Uh, well, you asked the question backwards. And so I really have to throw it back to you. You love dinosaurs as a kid, too, Bill. Everybody, dinosaurs in space, dinosaurs okay. in space. Okay, so it turns out 
those of us in paleontology just didn't grow up in that one way. We were always interested in dinosaurs. Um, but it, was, uh, it wasn't until, um, actually, I was already uh, working at Microsoft um, when uh, I realized uh, I might as well start doing some real dinosaur science. And I worked on a variety of different ways of uh, calculating things about their bodies. Um, one really fun one uh, is the, the uh, deposited uh, sauropods. So this is um, the platypus. These are things, they're, they're like a patasaurus, only bigger and thinner. So those ones that have those big skinny tails, well, no one knew what those tails were for. They looked, I remember as a kid in books, they were depicted as being dragged around. And you would be able to find a dinosaur's track if you looked for the groove the furrow that the tail would leave because it must have been so heavy that you just drag it everywhere. As it turns out, for this kind of dinosaur, there's never been a tail impression found. They held them off the ground. There's lots of tracks, but, but no tail thing. Well, there had been a, an idea that a, a crazy Scottish uh, anatomist, a great anatomist, um, uh, had that maybe they were a bullwhip. This big, long tail is going... Whack. And the way a bullwhip makes its noise, most people don't know this, is the tip actually goes supersonic. And it's a sonic boom. So I decided I would prove or disprove whether this was possible. And uh, another paleontologist and I uh, made a biomechanical model and we showed a, a computer model initially. And showed, yes, of course, it goes supersonic. In fact, it's almost perfectly designed to do that. It would have been hard for them to avoid it. Now, wait a second. You said you I said mean, the dinosaurs were a big, an ancient dinosaur as as large as a Tyrannosaurus Rex, whatever. This is this is way bigger than a than a T Rex. This is uh, a, a Diplodocus is what like eighty feet long. Yeah, ninety feet long, something like that. Ninety to one hundred feet, of which about forty five feet is tail. So this animal would routinely flap its thwip and break the speed of sound, or it could? Yes, it did. And in fact, here's one of the interesting pieces of evidence. Um, midway down the tail, there's bones, which if you compare in the evolution of sauropods, you can show that these bones used to be um, small, but for some reason the bone get, got larger there. Normally, tail bones in almost any animal start out a certain length, and they only get shorter as they go towards the tail. Yeah, that's what, like, uh, you've seen, if you look at a snake, for example. Sure, or a rep, uh, lizard, or even a, lizard, a mammal a lizard, with a tail. Sure. So uh, it turns out um, these would get smaller and then bigger and then smaller again. There was this maximum. And then right around that area, which is about a third of the way down the tail, roughly half the specimens have uh, a lot of bone uh, abnormal bone growth that occurs from overuse of those joints. And it, it's a kind of overuse that occurs in lots of animals, including humans. First diagnosed, actually, by a human um, uh, osteopathic surgeon who looked at the bones and said, oh, I know what that is. So basically, you're telling me that these dinosaurs had basically repetitive stress disorder from whipping their tails too much. Half of them did. In biology, whenever you have half, you suspect sexual dimorphism. So, in fact, 
It's likely the case that the male dinosaurs cracked their whips to show their fitness to the females. And of course, they were eager enough to crack their whips until they damn near wore them out. Totally male behavior. I know the feeling. Believe me. <laughs> Am I right, fellas? Now, wait a second. You said you, you made computer models to start. Does that mean you built physical models as well? Yes. You built physical models of a so, dinosaur. Uh, a dinosaur paleontologist who's a friend of mine, Ken Carpenter, kept saying, oh, that's just a computer model. It's just a computer model. Just a computer model? What, so, what sort of sentence is that? Well, so I would say, so Ken, it must be a very scary world for you. You can't go above the second floor of a building. You can't cross a bridge. You can't get on an airplane. <laughs> um, but... Uh, Eventually, he kept saying, hey, you wouldn't believe it until I built a physical model. So I built a physical model. Uh, it's a one-quarter scale model, so it's about 12 feet long. Uh, every bone is uh, replicated in this. I didn't replicate it to look like the bone, but structurally, the joint is the same. Um, uh, the way dinosaurs held their tails up is their backbone had these spines that stuck up called neural spines. And on the tops of those neural spines, they would have a big sinew, uh, very much like the cables in a suspension bridge. Yes. So I built that, and we had the whole thing set up. Uh, so it's held up on a stand, and you get to grab the handle and you get to be the ass end of the dinosaur, uh, the muscles that move the tail. <laughs> <laughs> and by God, it's very easy to make it go Mach 2. Uh, there you we, go. Wow. We have an ultra high speed video camera that we use to uh, prove that. So, we, uh, as you may know, Nathan, this <laughs> is a call in show, and I think we have a voice message. Roll that digital recording. Hello, this is Becca. I was wondering can our paleontology findings? further our understanding of how to do more with less and improve our future with food and clean energy? And if so, could you explain uh, different ways that that's possible? Thanks so much. There you go. From paleontology right. to the future of energy and the future of food. It's all, it's all the things you do. Can you connect them? <laughs> so, well, I, I think the first answer to say is this whole theory that, uh, the um, asteroid killed the dinosaurs, which is now very, very well established, has alerted us to the threat, which has caused NASA and others to look into space and look for these things. So there's actually a finite probability that dinosaur paleontology will save all life on Earth. So is that a big deal, Becca? Does that mean <laughs> anything for you? Now, more generally, she asked the question of, does it help us understand how to do more with less? And the answer is a little complicated. I'll say this. When you understand paleontology, you realize that the climate that we are used to is not a constant thing throughout Earth's history. Right? In the age of the dinosaurs, it was vastly warmer uh, than it is today. Over a thousand uh, parts per million of carbon dioxide. Lots of CO2. Um, it, it, they also had uh, a little more oxygen than we had uh, today. Um, and this allowed things, for example, there are uh, crocodile-like creatures 
that have been found on Axel Heiberg Island. Axel Heiberg is the furthest north piece of actual land on Earth. <laughs> um, uh, so we have a very different climate. Now, the reason I tell that story is, you know, in the fullness of time, we will get through this, where we it means Earth. Now, we meaning humans, we meaning human civilization, much less so. Unfortunately, the downside of what I just said is uh, if, you, um, if you're hoping that, oh, nature will like self-correct, we have no evidence that nature self-corrects or it doesn't do so very quickly because you might spend millions of years with a very hot world like the dinosaurs experienced or millions of years with a very cold world like uh, ice sheets a thousand feet thick over most of the United States, which also happened during ice ages. So I, I think what the, the story of paleontology tells us is life is adaptable, but not usually on the time scales that we're talking about. And we'd better do something about it ourselves because nature will not self-correct on a time scale that we care about. Stick around for more science rules after this. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. From muddy jungle paths to snowy trails to rolling sand dunes, the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder is ready to take you to some of the most phenomenal destinations on Earth. In a Pathfinder, it's more than just the arrival. The real excitement comes from the ride to get there. With seven drive modes, Pathfinder's available intelligent four-wheel drive is built for some of the most epic journeys. So chase bigger, better, more exciting adventures in the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder. Intelligent four-wheel drive cannot prevent collisions or provide enhanced traction in all conditions. Always monitor traffic and weather conditions. Science Rules is back. Uh, we have some fundamental questions from uh, listeners. Can we uh, can we roll that voicemail from uh, Sonia Debris? Good morning, Bill. This is Sonia Debris. Um, I'm asking a question on behalf of my seven-year-old daughter, Melody. She wants to know what your opinion is on nuclear power versus wind and solar energy. Thank you. She's asking for a friend who's her daughter, who's seven. Okay. Nuclear who's very who's very other- interested in nuclear power. Yeah, well, it this, this kids today, as you should be. All right, so Nathan, so what do you think? Nuclear power versus wind and solar? Well, it's not versus. Um, you know, the the way we generate power today is a whole mixture of different methods. We have different kinds of power plants with different kinds of fuel. Now, unfortunately, almost all of those power plants use fossil fuel, and. A good feature of a fossil fuel plant is you can control how much power it puts out. You can throttle it up for more power and down for less. Um, But you can also rely on it to be 24 hours a day, um, seven days a week. And we've built our whole society assuming power will be like that. Now, of the things which are called baseload power, which means seven by 24, Almost all of them 
generate enormous amounts of greenhouse gases. Um, strangely, that even includes hydroelectric dams when for the first 40 years after they're built. Um, old ones are great, but the new ones actually have uh, very significant greenhouse gas uh, production, uh, worse than coal for 40 years. Because of the concrete? Um, the concrete's part of it, but the worst is uh, when you build uh, a dam, you almost always flood a valley, and there's almost always some carbon in there. And that carbon then rots to methane over some period of years. And it really does not take very much carbon, just you know, grams per square meter uh, to make the dam a really bad uh, producer of uh, greenhouse gas. Uh, methane is, on the, the day that you release methane, it starts um, collecting more heat like CO2 does up in the atmosphere. It's a greenhouse gas, yeah. It's 120 times more powerful than CO2. Now, it does not have the lasting power of CO2 because it oxidizes into CO2. So eventually, it, um, it goes away. But CH4 becomes CO2 and H2O. Correct. There you go. Good old H2O. Well, actually, H2O is a greenhouse gas also. But it's not one that we want to get rid of. <laughs> Water vapor is the most important greenhouse gas. But here's the overall question is... Uh, to get this so-called baseline where uh, you're running your refrigerator all night, that's part of the base load. Uh, you, you keep certain lights on in certain buildings all night long. You run certain machinery all night long. If you had electric buses, the subway has to run generally all night. Okay, so to get to keep that base load power, I believe Ms. DeBreeze is asking... Yeah. Can we rely nuclear on nuclear is, power for this? Nuclear is the only uh, carbon-free option for producing a baseload power. So this leads me to another voicemail, which I hope will lead you, Nathan, to another fabulous insight. Uh, can we roll that digital recording? Hi, I have a question for Nathan about the differences between geoengineering and carbon capture, and if he can explain why we need both to help uh, fight climate change. Thank you. Geoengineering to me is trying to see, are there technical ways we could make Earth uh, not get hotter, that we could turn off global warming? And the answer, surprisingly, is yes, there's a lot of them. So rattle off a few. Rattle off a few. Okay. So first of all, you have to understand what global warming is and does. And global warming is a less than 1% effect. Okay. Now, here's what I mean by that. Suppose you had an ATM where every time you took a dollar out, the ATM kept a penny. Now, in reality, the bank keeps much more than a penny, but let's just assume that was the thing. Well, over a period of time, those transactions would add up and you'd get that penny times, you know, trillions of dollars in circulation would add up. Well, what happens with uh, the uh, increased CO2 is sunlight comes and hits the earth. Some of it's absorbed in the earth. It re-radiates as infrared light. And a little bit of the heat is captured in the atmosphere, more than used to be because there's more CO2. 
Now, that amount is called radiative forcing. That's the technical term for it. And it's currently, people will argue about this, different things, two to two and a half watts per square meter. Meanwhile, if we say how much sunlight is coming down, the average sunlight per square meter, if we average over the whole Earth and over the whole year, is about 300 watts per square meter. That's what makes it to the Earth's surface. Yes. It gets all the way to the Earth's surface through the atmosphere and including the, it's the about, poles or the polar regions and the equator. There you it's go. about 1,300 watts per square meter at the top of the atmosphere when the sun, you know, so that's where, where the sun is looking right at it. And then you go from that 1,300 down to 300 by averaging over day and night, averaging over the glancing aspect of the poles and the, so forth. Okay. Okay, so this is defining the scope of what you need to engineer if you want to geoengineer. Our only problem is we are retaining 1% more heat every day than we should. That's our 1% problem. 1% every day? Well, yes. Which no, adds no. up. It, it adds, adds up. up. So, so here's on. the deal. If we could make the sun 1% dimmer, it'd be great. We'd be done. Unless you want to grow food from no, plants. That 1% on actually is not enough, number one. And number two, photosynthesis doesn't use the whole spectrum. So, so okay, hold on. How are, you gonna, how are you going to turn down the sun by 1%? I think that's the technique that becomes okay. a big issue. Well, okay, so it turns out a guy figured this out. And the guy who figured it out first is Benjamin Franklin, believe it or not. Um, in the 1700s, there was a huge uh, eruption of a volcano in Iceland. And you had a huge cold snap all across uh, the Northern Hemisphere. And people couldn't figure out why. Benjamin Franklin wrote a scientific paper and read it before the Royal Society in Manchester, I think, saying that the fumes of the volcano blocked the diverse rays of the sun. He was right. Now, in 1991, Mount Pinatubo in the Philippines gave us another take of this. It was a particularly strong volcano, which shot a bunch of its uh, particulate matter all the way into the stratosphere. And it made Earth about 1.8 degrees colder for a year and a half. 1.8 uh, Fahrenheit? Fahrenheit, which is comparable to the amount that we need. So if you had Mount Pinatubo every year, we wouldn't have the problem. So is it your proposal then to create a shade, to create dust in the atmosphere uh, uh, unnaturally, human-induced? And I say your proposal, hypotheoretically. One of the ways to do this is to inject particles into the stratosphere. And it turns out if you do the calculation, it doesn't take very much, um, much in terms of the mass of the particles, to, to do the trick. But to me, intuitively, when you're trying to dim the sun with particles, the particles are going to fall down eventually. That's the great and, thing. That means that you, can't, that you can't overdo it or you can't make a permanent change. So well, whatever, here's the thing, though. If you continue to put go- carbon dioxide or, let's say, other greenhouse gases in the air and you lose the means 
to keep reflecting sunlight away. When you do turn it off, when the particles do fall down, you're going to crank the greenhouse effect that much. Okay, so then this takes us to another issue. Is global warming a serious problem or not? Well, today, whatever the arguments you choose to make, our society has collectively decided to do effectively nothing. So here we have this, we have the possibility of geoengineering, we have the possibility of nuclear power. Uh, I want to hear, if you were driving these solutions, do we need a giant expansion of nuclear power in, around the world? Do we need a giant geoengineering program? What do we do to start making a change now? So I think the responsible thing to make a change now is to, I think it's a serious enough problem that you should run down multiple paths in parallel. I think everything you, all at once, as I like to say, you should absolutely try to retire as many fossil fuel plants as possible. I would redo the grid because the grid is terrible. And that's another whole thing. If you actually care about renewables, the grid that we have today wasn't built with that in mind. You got to rebuild that. It's possible, but no one does have the political will. Now, I would also do a massive research program in geoengineering. Uh, I say research because we don't yet know how bad it will be at any given point in time. So if it's really bad, then, and it's killing millions of people or destroying the environment utterly, then you say, okay, let's do the geoengineering. Roll it out, guys. And of course, it will have some consequences. But if the consequences of global warming are really bad, then you're foolish not to consider the option. Let's say that any geoengineering idea or solution, as we'll call it to this, has to be acceptable to the public through common sense. Do you have any geoengineering ideas that people would go for? I, I think this, uh, the, what's called um, solar radiation management, which is the idea of putting particles in the stratosphere, I think you could make a very good case to the man on the street that this would be a possible thing. There are other things besides that. Like what's another one you like? Oh, um, cloud nucleation. You know, people have tried to seed clouds for better part of a century. Cloud seeding is different. That well. Cloud seeding okay. is different. So it, it turns out that uh, if over the ocean – there's a lot of water vapor that would love to condense. But in, in order for it to condense and form a cloud, it needs to have a, a dust particle to nucleate onto. Yeah, and it's often actually salt from the sea itself finds its way into the sky. Very good. But it's if you look at the ocean overall and compare it to the land, you find that the ocean is typically starved for nucleation relative to the amount of humidity that's there. And all you have to do is put some particles up for the clouds to nucleate on. And the simplest particle is, in fact, salt right from the ocean. So we dry the ocean out, grind up the salt, <laughs> shoot it into the sky. But it's got to get up. Nathan, this salt has to, or these particles have to get up at cloud level. That's a long way up. No, actually not. Um, pe people have done quite a bit of work of this. Fundamentally, cloud nucleation must occur in the troposphere. And you want it in the relatively, you know, the, the first few hundred meters. 
So what you need to do is have a boat. The boat has a kite. The kite is flying a couple hundred meters up. There's a, a pump that takes seawater and sprays out a nozzle up there like a big shower. And there and, you go. And is the boat fossil fuel powered? Is it a diesel boat? Well, if you asked, like, so, so this scheme that I just outlined was uh, actually invented by a friend of mine. And he has a very elegant scheme that use, uses computer control robotic sailboats to do it. Me, I would say, just make every damn container ship. Put one of these things in the back end. And let's start with that first. So they'd basically be like leaving contrails as they go, only it'd be climate controlling contrails. Interesting thing. They do leave contrails. Yes. Yeah. It it turns out that that's just the amount of particles in the diesel fuel exhaust of those boats is enough to to make a contrail. And remember one percent is almost impossible for us to see with our uh, our eyes. Our eyes have a logarithmic response, which means you need factors of two. So a, an amount of cloud that would block 1% of light is not human visible. While we're going behind um, a ship, a, a container ship, are you hip to this idea of hydrosols, tiny bubbles to reflect sunlight? Okay, so that's another one of my friends has invented that. So... Uh, you know, the ocean is super dark. Are you talking about uh, Russell Seitz? Yep. So Russell is the man when it comes to um, bubble baths, okay, and understanding foams. And so his approach is to say, effectively, let's put lots of foam out on the ocean. Why? Because the foam is uh, light-colored, and that light-colored foam will re- reflect lots of light. Whereas the ocean effectively absorbs all of it. People have done studies about how much sunlight is reflected when they're white caps, when the wind has fetched up uh, waves that are foamy yeah. on top. And this guy, Russell Seitz, has the idea that you could create bubbles on purpose that are so small. How small would they be? They'd be so small that they wouldn't uh, float to the surface right away be like the pearls in the shampoo they'd exist for a few days and these occur naturally after storms and so on so it's, it's a cool it's, big it's picture certainly idea. another kind and there's all sorts of other things anything that's painted black here on earth is a bad idea the place is lousy with them you know we've talked about yeah, asphalt. Like asphalt and roofs yeah, and, roofs and all these other and, these yes. things so there's a whole variety of ways you can work at making the thing lighter. Now, the question also asked about carbon capture. Exactly. I was going to ask about the other half of the equation of taking the carbon out or sequestering it. So there's, uh, there's two different things that people talk about. Usually, if they talk about carbon capture and storage or CCS, usually people who talk about that have, a diff- have the idea of saying, Let's use a fossil energy plant. It produces all the CO2 it produces, and let's catch it right at the plant level. Then there's another set of people that are uh, into what's called atmospheric capture, and they say, let's just suck the CO2 straight out of the air. And they both have problems. The, the problem with the power plant one is it's a ton of CO2 coming out per second, and trying to capture it and 
store it is just technologically tedious. I say tedious. It's like you're trying to you're trying to drink a tsunami with a straw. Well, in the case of uh, natural gas, you have natural gas pipe going into the plant. If you wanted to have a CO two plant uh, pipe coming out, it ha- the pipe has to be three times larger because the mass of what you're coming out is three times larger. It, because the carbon the carbon is combining with the oxygen in the atmosphere. Right. So that has been something. So the fossil fuel industry has promoted CCS, but they don't have any really good plants that are doing it. Or the plants that have done it on an experimental basis typically will do 90% capture. And 90% capture really isn't that good when you go through all of the harm analysis. I've been to uh, the Shell plant in Fort McMurray, uh, Alberta. And uh, it's uh, it's interesting, charming, uh, technically amazing, but it's capturing a very, very small fraction of the effluent. Okay, so what, what about direct air capture? Well, the problem with that is that CO2 right now is a bit over 400 parts per million, per million, meaning there's very, very little of it there. It's logistically difficult at a fixed price to move enough air that uh, through an industrial plant, you could capture it. There's people who are optimistic, and I say more power to you, but boy, that's difficult because it's so dilute. Then there's another way to do it, which says, we actually know of, of organisms evolved to do this. They're called plants. So why don't we grow plants just to CO2, to carbon uh, sequester? Well, that only works if we take the result from that, the, the carbon, and we store it someplace where it doesn't rot to methane and doesn't oxidize to CO2. Right, right. People have talked about making like artificial peat bogs and burying them really deep where they'll stay for millions of years. <laughs> speaking of plants, speaking of plants and artificial thises and thats, I think we have and a voicemail. Sunshine. And sunshine. Thank you. I think we have a voicemail that I'd like you, uh, okay. Nathan, to respond to. Here we go. Roll that digital recording. Hey there. I remember reading somewhere that it would be possible to run the entire U.S. on solar, and it wouldn't be unbelievably expensive to implement. Can you talk about this? Also, could this be applied to the whole world? Nathan, what do you think? Could we run the whole place on solar energy? To me, the key way to answer that question is to understand what the capabilities are, both of our current grid and the kinds of grids that we could build. Uh, And the fact that at the moment, we don't have any very cost-effective, reliable way of storing power. Um, And if you take today's world, the fact is today's world, we don't have a grid that will let us efficiently use very much renewable energy at all. In fact, a huge amount of renewable energy that's generated is thrown away the moment it's generated through a process called curtailment because the grid doesn't have the right capacity at the right time to suck it away. Yeah, when it's bright, sunny, uh, sometimes you don't need all that electricity. Then at night you need it and you can't get it. So if we had a really good storage mechanism, that would work. Unfortunately, at the moment, batteries are not really good. And by really good here, what I mean is cost-effective compared to just 
having a natural gas plant and turning the throttle on. That is so cheap and so mature in technology and so reliable, that wins every damn time. For solar and, and wind, without extensive modifications to the current grid, we can't get uh, up above about 20%. So how would you um, modify the grid? Well, so we have a whole project that we did to, we've modeled the entire U.S. grid and not a very simplified academic kind of approach. We took the whole goddamn grid in, so it's got millions of nodes in it, and we know historically what the demand has been for many years. We also have the U.S. weather for many years, and so you can play back different years' demand versus weather, and you can say, what do we need? You can uh, predict the past, as we say in baseball. <laughs> yes, exactly. And that, uh, that leads to the, the conclusion that without very extensive modifications to the grid, you can't even get up to 30%, even if you overbuild. So how would you modify the grid? Oh, you modify the grid by, first of all, changing the weird way it's regulated, because currently the grid is regulated locally. And once upon a time, roads were all regulated locally. And then in the 1950s, the government said, no, we need a U.S. federal highway system. So we're going to put that in, damn it. And they did. And that, that was hugely helpful. Um, you need to have a federal grid that has ultra high capacity, ultra high speed, long distance links between the places where you can exploit renewables like say, the desert. Didn't President Obama have this idea? He was going to uh, improve the grid? Well, they didn't do anything about it. It was just an idea. So you're an old Microsoft guy, right? I am. Uh, and so many of the people that I spent time with from Microsoft are at some level libertarians. Some pe people who want to minimize government as much as possible big government is bad and so on. Are you one of those people when it comes to the electrical grid? Well, the current situation is the grid is very highly regulated and is regulated where each state public utility commission has a mandate to only consider the needs of their state. It's heavily regulated, but it's the wrong style of regulation is what you're saying. Well, it's no matter how good the people are you put in there, there's the people in North Dakota where they have lots of wind. That utility commission has very little interest in building long distance energy uh, pipelines across its state, you know, these uh, extra grid things, um, and charging members of its state for benefits they don't get. So, j just like with the um, highway system, you need to have a framework. Now, you could say that you still have the individual chunks might still be privately owned, but you need to have some framework that thinks of the country as a whole. And so, absolutely, I'm not a libertarian on that aspect. Uh, hold on, but how about this? Let's put it this way. You're king of the forest. You're like the cowardly lion. You're the guy. You're running the show. What would you do with the electrical grid? I would map out the plans take like most states and states have a plan to get to be 20 or 30 percent renewables by 2030 ish you know some are a little more aggressive some are a little less aggressive now 
we've done this modeling. They can't all achieve that goal with the current grid, even if you built enough um, wind and solar to supply 60%, you couldn't get 30% actually used. If you had the electricity available, renewably produced, you couldn't get it distributed. Correct. So you, what you have to do is then say, okay, figure out what you need to do to that, which is very easily done. It's not like this requires magic technology, but then you have to go convince a lot of right-of-ways. Yeah, we have to put in this new high-voltage DC. Yeah, well, hold on. So, yeah, so how much of that? How much of that is a technological issue versus how much of it is a regulatory issue? I mean, do you actually need to develop new technologies, or is it really just we have everything well, we need, we just don't know how to roll it out? So here's an amusing thing. I, I meet with people in the power industry, and I ask them, how come the highest um, voltage lines we have in the United States are 765 kilovolts, whereas China is building two and three million volt things? They said, oh, that's because we have regulation. We can't build above 765K. Is so that because the regulations were written when the technology was only good enough for that? You couldn't insulate yes, things well enough? that's right. Yeah. So anyway, this, of all of the technical challenges, if you want to talk about fusion, that's a hard problem. Figuring out how to put this grid thing is an easy problem comparatively, but you still run into a limit. So even with the built-up grid, we find it very difficult to get above 30% renewables with, because um, you don't have storage. And the United States isn't quite big enough. Um, and that sounds strange. But you need to be able to offset peak demand in one area with generation in another. And so it's really nice that peak demand uh, for electricity is usually in the early evening. And, well, when it's the early evening on the East Coast, the sun is still shining in Arizona, so maybe we can ship some power back. Science Rules will be right back. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. You're listening to Science Rules. I got an, a very important question for you, because this is a mystery, right? Like how to get beyond batteries, but if you want to talk about mysteries... We've got one right here. Uh, please roll that digital recording. Hi, Bill. I have a very important question. Why does pizza taste so good? It's my goal in life to find the answer to this mystery of a question. Thank you. Why does pizza taste so good? <laughs> now, now we're getting to life's big questions. Yes. This, all this... Uh, you know, global warming well, this and energy that. Pizza, man. So it, it, it's, I'll tell you how excellent a question it is. Um, it turns out that it, I write a big book on pizza and we've gone back to look at lots of historical um, uh, discussions of pizza. So pizza as we know it started as a street food in Naples 
in the 19th century. And through the 19th century, you had various people travel through Naples uh, and write about it. And turns out none of them liked it. Well, that's crazy. They all thought it was, not all, almost all accounts say it's horrible. That it's beyond these, pe- these people were cr- these people were crazy, or is it a primitive form of pizza? Well, it's a mixture. The the pizza back then might not have been as much to our taste as pizza now. Um, one of the funniest ones uh, I found was a uh, description by an Italian northern Italian writer who uh, is probably most famous to us as the author of Pinocchio. So presumably, he can't tell a lie. And he has this discussion about going to Naples and eating pizza and how disgusting it is and how it looks like the guy vomited or scooped something in the sewer up onto his, his thing. So, oddly enough, pizza wasn't popular in Italy. It's sure popular now. Man, oh, man. And, and if, it's, if pizza had not left Naples, I think that it would be an example of something you find all over Italy, which is a great food that's found only in one spot and no place else makes it. Let me ask you this. We've gotten a lot of uh, voicemails, a lot of emails about this deep pizza question, talking about whether or not it's beloved or it's disgusting. Does pineapple belong on pizza? <laughs> Well, I guess the the first point to clarify here is although people will often call it a Hawaiian-style pizza, it was invented uh, in Toronto by a Canadian guy who ran a pizzeria there who thought it sounded like a good idea. And yet I, well, feel, you like you're the, dodging, I feel like you're dodging the question. Oh, I, and, okay, and by so, the way, the, the beauty, the reason people, I think, are attracted, and I'm not, I'm not coming down on either side here, everybody. But I think the reason people are attracted to pineapple ham pizza is because it carries with it these two mythic things, fat or sweetness and salt. And you, that, who doesn't love that? Well, so, it, of course. So let me ask you, Nathan Mirabold, author of Modernist Cooking, uh, uh, pizza pizzanato, knowledgeable pizza person, pineapple yes, pineapple no. I'm personally not that fond of it. Um, but there's a pizzolo I know in um, in Italy who claims he has made a fantastic pineapple-themed pizza, and this guy is so good at everything else. He developed this during this coronavirus period, so as soon as it's over, I'll go taste it. I'm glad it. somebody's doing something productive but during this. Doggone. If, yeah. if you think pineapple and ham is bad, in Brazil and uh, Argentina, uh, they have lots of pizzas that have uh, big rings of pineapple on them. And they usually have the whole ring. And then there's a hole in the center. And the center hole, they put a whole green olive. And for reasons I don't understand, they neither pit them. So if you don't know, you bite into it, you break a tooth. And they also don't slice them. So as the person's carrying the pizza to your table, they're rolling all over the place. We've talked about electricity. We've talked about fusion. We've talked about fission. We've talked about wind and solar. 
Uh, and I cannot help but hearken to the phenomenon that happens around North America of very large storms. Very large storms. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness, Corey. It's time for the lightning round, Nathan. So we ask okay. you a question. And we did just give us your lightning answer. I, I am fully grounded. What? Uh, there you go. That's <laughs> see what he did there. There we are. Your favorite dinosaur. Uh, my favorite T-Rex. Right now, cool. though, I'm working on uh, a paper on Spinosaurus, which is a another large meat-eating dinosaur. Uh, what's your favorite type of pizza? A really good margarita. In your opinion, what is uh, a bit of technology that's done the most for humankind? Because <laughs> well, I got a clear answer. I'll tell you, I got a clear okay, answer. Okay, farming has been pretty damn good. Uh, what's your answer? Uh, electricity. Being able to create generate electricity from spinning machines. Pretty good. What's the worst technology? Um, well, actually, most of the things that are really great have at one point or another been really bad. Uh, agriculture is what allows civilization to exist. But early on, before we really understood it, people would build up large populations so there'd be a drought and millions of people would die. So it was also kind of a huge problem. What is it you haven't studied yet that you'd like to study? Well, actually, one of the things that's next on the list is winemaking. It's got many aspects similar to cooking um, in that people learned how to do it before they understood any of the science behind it. And as a result in cooking, most principles of most cookbooks before mine are wrong. Um, and not just uniquely mine, but before people started taking science to look at how things actually work in the kitchen, almost every um, thing that people thought was true in the kitchen turns out to be false or false in some limit. And I'm pretty so, sure that the same thing is true with wine. So with that said, is there anything, is there one thing or let's say a small set of things that you think everybody should know? Everybody should understand probability a little better than we do. Now, it, it, it's very funny. The, almost everyone, in order to get through high school, has some algebra class, and they tell them about the quadratic equation. And some people use the quadratic equation every day. And personally, I love it. But if they taught people a little more about probability, I think it would be a huge, huge benefit to us. Because um, we'd assess risk better, we'd know what we were doing a little better? Yes. Uh, lots of things in life involve us assessing what's the most likely thing or what's the most likely bad thing that I want to avoid. And yet we're very poor at, at doing that natively. Um, it, it, you know, it, if we were all natural probability theorists, we wouldn't gamble. We wouldn't do all kinds of other things. We're not natural, but we did invent this mathematics of probability theory. And boy, if you really took that to heart in a broader way, I think it would improve people's lives. It would change the world. It would. Well, thank you so much. To. It's likely to. <laughs> oh, well said. Very well said. 
So thanks for joining us today to talk about uh, to talk about everything. Our guest today has been Nathan Mirvold, the head of intellectual ventures, among much, much else. Thank you so much. So remember, when it comes to solving the biggest problems on earth, pizza or otherwise, science, science rules. And if you like Science Rules, please take a moment to rate and review it in Apple Podcasts and on Stitcher. It helps us out and helps other people learn about the show. So thank you. Be sure to look at my socials, as the kids call them, for more information on our upcoming guests. Meanwhile, if you'd like to leave us a voicemail, and I hope you do, give us a call at 201-472-0785. 201-472-0785. Or submit a question to your homepage, askbillnye.com. The Science Rules is produced by Harry Huggins and our own Corey S. Powell. Hey, Bill. Casey Halford mixed this episode and composed our original theme. Josephine Martirana is our executive producer. Chris Bannon is the chief content officer at Stitcher. And at Stitcher, everyone, Science, Science Rules. rules. From muddy jungle paths to snowy trails to rolling sand dunes, the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder is ready to take you to some of the most phenomenal destinations on Earth. In a Pathfinder, it's more than just the arrival. The real excitement comes from the ride to get there. With seven drive modes, Pathfinder's available intelligent four-wheel drive is built for some of the most epic journeys. So chase bigger, better, more exciting adventures in the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder. Intelligent four-wheel drive cannot prevent collisions or provide enhanced traction in all conditions. Always monitor traffic and weather conditions.